Hello and welcome to the audio side of the Live a Little podcast. My name is Presley. I am your host. And today I have a special guest. It is Glenn Geffner, voice of the Marlins. I had a really good conversation with him. Uh, this conversation means a lot. Talking to somebody in your own industry who's been there for, you know, 30 years, that's a, that's a big deal. It doesn't matter uh, what profession you're in. If you get that opportunity and you take it, you got to take in every moment of it and uh, take what they have to say and really use it and apply it to whatever you got going on. This is the first podcast I have uploaded in nearly a year because of my struggle to find people to come on, and uh, I'm very thankful for Glenn to come on and talk to me. Uh, it was a really good interview just just about him. Uh, we kind of left the Marlins talk out of it. Of course, we talk about some really cool baseball moments and stuff. Uh, if you're over here and this is your first time listening, go back and listen to all the rest of them. I can't promise that all of them are going to be good as this. Uh, make sure you follow. Rate me five stars, hopefully, if you truly enjoy it. Uh, yeah, enjoy the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Live a Little Podcast. I am Presley. This is Glenn Geffner, voice of the Miami Marlins. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Presley. It's good to be with you. Good to talk some baseball today. I'm excited to have you on. Uh, you've been doing this for a long time. It's, uh, how long have you been with the Marlins? This is my 15th season with the Marlins. It's my 26th season in the major leagues, having worked for the Red Sox and the Padres before I came to Miami. And it's my 31st season in baseball overall. I started right out of college back in 1990, working in AAA in Rochester, New York, who was at that time the Baltimore Orioles AAA affiliate. And it's been a, a fun 31 years. I've kind of flown by in many respects. Whenever you uh, came up from AAA and broadcasted your first major league game, did that feel like a major league debut moment? Like it did. Uh, it was with the San Diego Padres, and when I initially went to San Diego, I had been doing both broadcasting and public relations with the Rochester Red Wings. And when I initially went to San Diego, it was as the team's public relations director. And as time went on, I had the chance to begin to fill in on radio and television broadcasts and do some ancillary TV programming for the Padres. And then eventually I joined the radio broadcast full-time in San Diego. But I remember the very first game I did, and it did very much feel like a debut. In fact, it was a Padres-Reds game in Cincinnati, and Bruce Bochy, who was the manager of the Padres at the time, who one day be in the Hall of Fame, actually gave me the lineup card that day, which I still have. So that's a pretty cool memento from that very first broadcast. Uh, whenever you were coming in, did you want to do radio or did you have TV was radio bigger than TV back then radio has always been my passion and I'm 53 years old I think I'm kind of at the very tail end of broadcasters who grew up listening to baseball on the radio more than really watching it on TV uh, 1979 is the year that ESPN was born I was 10 years old at that point uh, up until that time you didn't have baseball on TV all the time. You didn't have the MLB network, certainly. You couldn't access games on your iPhone because your iPhone didn't exist at that time. Uh, so when I grew up in South Florida, before the Marlins even existed, what we had in terms of Major League Baseball was spring training games with the Orioles in Miami and the Yankees up in Fort Lauderdale at that time. Uh, we had University of Miami baseball, which was really big, and we used to go to games out at Mark Light Stadium all the time. And then from my family's standpoint, we would travel in the summer and sometimes go see some ballparks around the country. And, and that was my 
baseball on TV. We've got the game of the week every Saturday at NBC at 1 o'clock with Joe Garagiola and Tony Kubek. Whatever the best game in baseball was that week, might be the Red Sox and Yankees or the Dodgers and Reds, whoever it was, that would be on every Saturday at 1 o'clock right after Mel Allen's This Week in Baseball. And in Miami in those days, every Tuesday night, one of the local TV stations would show the Yankees telecast. There were a lot of Yankees fans down here. So that was my baseball on TV, but a local radio station at every single Yankees game, and they had occasional Red Sox and Orioles games they would broadcast. So I would listen to baseball on the radio all the time. That's how I really fell in love with baseball, just listening to broadcasters paint the picture on the radio, being descriptive as you have to be on radio, much more so than on television where the viewer can see everything that's going on. And that was always my passion. And I carried that into college where I had the chance to work in student radio at Northwestern University in Chicago. And uh, I've done some TV over the years, but I always come back to radio. It's what I'm passionate about. It's a challenge that I feel is unlike anything else you can do in broadcasting. And I really enjoy it quite a bit. So growing up in Miami without a professional baseball team, uh, getting to hear the Yankees all you a Yankees fan or did you just like baseball overall? I, I kind of was a Yankees fan and having spent a lot of time in Boston, I hate to say that, I hate to admit that publicly, but this was the mid-70s. You're talking about the Yankees won the World Series back-to-back in 77 and 78. Uh, they had so many great players, Reggie Jackson, Greg Nettles was a personal favorite of mine. We were at a spring training game in Miami and Greg Nettles gave me a bat. And so from that moment on at age eight, Greg Nettles was my favorite Major League Baseball player growing up. Uh, and as the years went on, they brought in guys like Dave Winfield and uh, Don Mattingly was there, who I'd later get to go on and, and work with now with my, Miami. Uh, so I, I followed the Yankees because that's what was on the radio every night. And they were on TV at least once a week in Miami in those days. But I read everything I could about baseball in general. That's how I fell in love with reading, was reading about baseball, whether it's player biographies, historic biographies, books about the history of the sport. I collected baseball cards and memorized statistics on the back of cards and as time went on even at the age of seven or eight uh i would sit down and broadcast games in my bedroom if there was a game on tv i turned the volume down and if the red sox were playing the yankees let's say i'd pull out my red sox cards my yankees cards i'd flip them over so i'd have statistics for all the players and i'd literally sit in my bedroom and broadcast baseball games when i was seven eight nine ten years old so i guess that was my introduction to baseball broadcasting uh and while i was always a sports fan in general and I followed the NFL. Uh, we, you know, we had the Dolphins down here at the time. Didn't have the Heat. Didn't have the Panthers. Didn't have a lot of what we have now in South Florida. Uh, and I've always loved college sports. Baseball was always a sport that I one played and two was most passionate about. So uh, from a very early age, I had a feeling that baseball was what I wanted to be involved with, one way or another. So you went to school directly for journalism. Like, did you know that was what you were going to do whenever you uh, got through high school? Well, I studied journalism at Northwestern, and back in those days, you didn't have high school TV and radio stations like you have in so many places these days. You didn't have advanced broadcasting programs, a lot of universities even. And so baseball broadcasting, in a way, kind of seemed like it was way, way out there for me. It didn't seem really accessible, potentially. Uh, Well, that's why I got into writing. I figured, okay, I'd, I'd like to cover Major League Baseball for Sports Illustrated, for example, which was huge in those days. You had people like... Peter Gammons and Tim Kirkjian and Steve Russian, who wrote for Sports Illustrated, covered Major League Baseball so brilliantly. And when I went to school, my initial thought was I could write about baseball. But I got to Northwestern, and fall quarter of my freshman year, I saw signs they were auditioning for the sports department, the student radio station. 
And I decided to try to get involved there. And I auditioned, figuring, hey, I've already broadcast World Series games from my bedroom over there. So I've got to have more experience than most of these people. And I earned a spot at the student radio station. And that became really the primary focus extracurricularly of my four years at Northwestern. Uh, we had the chance at our student radio station to travel the football, basketball, and baseball teams and call Big Ten football, basketball, and baseball, men's and women's basketball. We did a talk show every Sunday night. We did sports casts. I got some experience technically learning how to you know, get broadcasts on the air and doing things like that. So uh, that's where really broadcasting became kind of a tangible thing for me that I could reach out and touch and actually do and make a lot of mistakes while I was in college and put a tape together, most importantly, so that when I got out of school, I had a tape that I could use to audition for jobs. So you've been in baseball clubhouses and stuff for many years now. Uh, I'm sure you've created a lot of relationships with players, managers, other broadcasters and stuff. Who would your, like, I guess you could say biggest flex, like your, your, show off who would who that relationship be well it i wouldn't call it a flex or a show off or anything like that uh you know it's when you work with people on a daily basis you you're no longer a fan and you look at things a lot differently than a fan would look at things this is somebody who has a job to do and uh, i'm around him doing his job on a daily basis so I wouldn't look at it as a flex or anything. I mean, I've been lucky to work directly with a lot of players who are in the Hall of Fame already. And so I wouldn't call it a flex, but I would say the person who I was closest with over the years, who I learned the most from, who, who really taught me so much about the game, is Tony Gwynn, who I worked with in my years with the San Diego Padres at the tail end of his major league career. And Tony, not only was he a great player, a great hitter, a great man, he loved to talk baseball all the time. And Tony would, I'd walk into the clubhouse, he had an open locker next to his, and he'd just tap the stool next to his locker and say, hey, sit down, and we just talk baseball. And uh, he would do most of the talking, I would do a lot of listening. Every now and then he'd ask me for my thoughts on something, and I, to this day I have no idea why he would want to know my thoughts on anything related to baseball. But uh, I learned more from Tony in those years and those conversations literally on a daily basis during my time in San Diego than from anybody I've ever been around. And to this day, when I broadcast games, Tony's words will come out of my mouth. I'll sometimes quote Tony or other times I'll just say things the way Tony said them or, or have an observation. That might be something that Tony passed on to me in 1999, but it comes out of my mouth in 2022. And we were actually just in San Diego a few weeks ago and it's weird going back there now in recent years and Tony not being there anymore. But his son, Tony Jr., broadcasts for the Padres. And I love catching up with Tony Jr., who sounds, if you close your eyes, he sounds exactly like his father. Uh, but I, I, one, love hearing that and hearing the laugh. But, uh, you know, more than anything, I, I love being able to tell Tony every time I see him the impact his dad made on me and how, to this day, he still really influences everything that I do in baseball. A couple of weeks ago on the broadcast, you actually talked about uh, a story with Luis Gonzalez whenever he was on the Marlins and taking everybody out, and uh, you missed that that little experience. Do you have That's any right. experiences like that where you were on, you know, you actually made it to it? Oh, boy. I, I have more stories than, than I can tell about, you know, cool things that I've been able to do over the years thanks to baseball. You know, and a lot of them are Tony Gwynn-related, sitting in a room with Tony Gwynn and Ted Williams talking about listening on my part, but listening to the two of them talk hitting for hours on end and listening to Ted Williams grill Tony Gwynn about 
why you do this and why you do that and what would happen if you did this. And, and Tony, who to me was the ultimate teacher in this sense, was was the pupil. And, and he was deferring to, to Mr. Williams, as he would call him. And But listening to Tony kind of give it back to Ted from time to time and listening to Ted reinforce what Tony was saying. Uh, had a similar experience with Tony and the great Stan Musial in St. Louis. Uh, you know, being a fly on the wall for conversations like that, very special, very unique. Uh, you know, I think back to the highlight of my time in Boston was in 2004 when the Red Sox came back from 3-0 down to win the World Series, uh, to win the ALCS, then eventually won the World Series against the Cardinals, sweeping St. Louis, winning the World Series for the first time since 1918, snapping the 86-year-old curse of the Bambino. But, uh, you know, being able to be on a duck boat for the parade in front of whatever the number was, 3 million, 6 million people, whatever, in the streets and uh, in, in the river in Boston. Uh, but being on a duck boat with David Ortiz and Manny Ramirez and, and some of those guys uh, in the midst of that with people hanging out of windows for miles and miles on end. Uh, so there are a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of special dinners, uh, nights out with, with people like Trevor Hoffman in San Diego, for example, uh, and some of the generosity he and others have shown me and my family over the years. Uh, those are very special memories, no doubt. Uh, I want to know what moment baseball-related uh, really stands out to you. Whether I want to know both, actually. I want to know one that you were listening to or watching on TV, or one that and one that you called, that you were personally calling. Oh, wow. That's, that's interesting, and it's challenging. Because uh, there have been so many, both as a fan and as a broadcaster. Um, I guess specific to baseball, because I, when I think about sports in general and sports broadcasting and things that I remember from my childhood, the number one sports memory I have has nothing to do with baseball, but it was the Miracle on Ice in 1980, the U.S. Olympic hockey team beating the Soviets, and I was 11 years old, and I remember that like it was yesterday. I remember every detail of that like it was yesterday. Uh, and actually, you think about cool stories, cool things, because that makes such an impact on me. Now, fast forward to 2004, I'm working for the Red Sox, and I'm in the clubhouse minutes before Game 7 of the ALCS, the Red Sox and the Yankees, the Yankees had won the first three games. Now the Red Sox come back. They've won the next three, the fourth game seven. And Theo Epstein, who was the GM of the Red Sox at the time, calls a team meeting. And I'm in the room for this as he plays a couple of voicemail messages he had received, one from Jim Craig, the other from Michael Ruzioni, the two, the captain at Ruzioni, the goaltender, Craig, two of the stars, that Olympic hockey team. But two Boston guys trying to inspire the Red Sox to finish off this miracle of their own. So you talk about worlds colliding a little bit. It was a great childhood memory of mine. And then I'm in the room as Theo's playing these messages for all the guys who then would go out and beat the Yankees in Game 7 and uh, go on to win the World Series about a week later. Uh, so from a baseball standpoint, it's funny. Things that stand out, I remember the Pine Tar game with George Brett against the Yankees. It was a Sunday afternoon like it was yesterday. I remember being home alone, listening to it on the radio. I remember my parents coming home from wherever they were, and I remember running out into the front yard and trying to explain to them what had just happened. And you won't believe what just happened in this Yankees-Kansas City Royals game. Uh, that, that's one from childhood as a fan that certainly stands out. And for my baseball career, I mean, there are just so many. Uh, I don't even know where to begin, but uh, – you know, I mean, I, I've been lucky enough to call perfect games and no hitters and and postseason games and 
uh, 3,000th hits and 500th home runs and things like that. So it's hard really just to pick one. But, uh, you know, I, I'd say more than anything, being around the Red Sox in 2004, if, if I had to pick any one specific thing. Uh, and along with that, being around the San Diego Padres when they won the pennant in 1998 with an incredible group of guys. Uh, and I was the head of PR at the time. I wasn't actually on the radio. I was doing PR at that time. But being around every step of the ride for those two seasons uh, was pretty special. Unfortunately, not much in recent history. Uh, you've called games for playoff baseball teams in the past, uh, including the 2021 or 2020 Marlins. How much more fun is it for a broadcaster to call a team for a team that's you know fighting to make the postseason yeah. or in the middle of a postseason run? Yeah, look, it's a long season, and if you're a fan, you can check in and check out when you want to. If you want to watch the game or listen tonight, you can, or you can decide not to. Uh, if you want to go to the game, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. But when you're around the team for 162, uh, it can be a long season. Uh, even in the best of years, it's a grind. But when things aren't going well, it's harder to get out of bed in the morning, no question. And when things are going well, you can't wait to get out of bed in the morning. You can't wait to get to the ballpark. When you know Jose Fernandez is going to pitch tonight, you can't wait to get to the ballpark because you know you have a chance to see something special. So there's no question uh, it's easier to do my job, and there's no question I'm better at my job when the team is playing well and things are going well for the club. Uh, it was fun in 2020, as strange a year as that was, with no fans in the ballpark, the abbreviated schedule because of COVID. Nonetheless, to be calling meaningful games down the stretch that season and getting to call some playoff games for the Marlins for the first time, and the only time in the 15 years that I've been here so far, uh, it was really special. It was a lot of fun, and would like to think we're not too far off being able to do it again before too long uh, with fans in the ballpark and over the full 162. But it certainly makes doing the job a lot easier. You really have to work hard. When when the team is not playing well and when you're in a stretch of losing seasons, it makes the job a lot harder. you got to prepare differently. Uh, you've got to approach the broadcast night in and night out a little bit differently. When you're in a playoff race, the storylines kind of write themselves. When you're buried in fourth place or you're in fifth place, and it's dragging on month after month or heaven forbid year after year, you got to work harder and you got to find reasons to encourage listeners to tune in and to stay with you. And and so there's a lot more work involved in doing this job when things aren't going well. And, you know, the reality is the 15 years I've been in Miami, for the most part, uh, most of those seasons have kind of been those kind of years rather than the exciting pennant chase kind of years. I have to imagine that calling 162 games a year, uh, at home, wherever, uh, you feel like you're part of the team a little bit. And uh, a couple weeks ago, when the Phillies blew a lead in the ninth against the Mets, uh, the the radio broadcasters, a lot of people on Twitter at least, were giving them a lot of criticism because it sounded like they were too emotional about it. What what would your opinion be on that? Like, what would you well, have to tell those people? And I didn't hear specifically what you're talking about. I know Scott Fransky, the longtime voice of the Phillies, very well, and he's a pro and one of my favorites. Um, so I can't speak specifically to that. But the reality is when you are the voice of a team, as opposed to being the network broadcast who helicopters in and does one game or does one postseason series or whatever, when you are around the team day in and day out and year in and year out, you have a different level of investment. And – you, you want the team to do well, certainly. Like I said, your job is easier and more fun when the team is doing well and everybody's happy 
and, and wants to talk baseball with you all the time as opposed to when things aren't going well. Uh, so so I can understand it. You know, I, I look at myself in many respects as the voice of the fan. And, and I think if you're being true to yourself and true to your listeners, uh, your reaction very often will be very similar to what a fan is feeling at that moment. Now, you got to control it. And you also have, I think, a lot more information, a lot more perspective, maybe than the typical fan does. And so it's easier to understand some things that happen or to explain some things that happen or don't happen. And and I think that's an important role of the broadcaster to do that. But we've all been there. We've all gotten frustrated at various moments. Uh, p- part of what I would say, though, also that's a focus for me over the years is to never forget how hard the game is to play. And when somebody makes a mistake, makes an error, doesn't get a hit, takes a call third strike right down the middle, whatever it is, we got to remember there's a reason why those guys are on the field and we're not. And the last guy on the roster on the worst team in Major League Baseball is exponentially better than any of us could ever dream of being. And there's a reason why he's in the big leagues and we're not. So you got to keep that perspective as well. So uh, I, I try to tell the truth. I try to be a credible reporter of what's happening on the field in front of me. But at the same time, I never forget, just as Scott Fransky would never forget, you know, I'm the voice of the Marlins. He's the voice of the Phillies. And if your listener doesn't know that you want the Marlins to win in my case or the Phillies to win in his case, you're not doing your job very well. Whenever, uh, whenever you are calling games and you – are into a game, whether, you know, the Marlins are winning or losing and something big happens, you, you do a very, very good job at being excited, make like keeping the fan into it. Mm. How, how have you formed that over the years? Like, I'm sure it hadn't always been able, like easy to do that. You know what I mean? Like a strikeout in an important situation, the Marlins strike out, you, you still keep the fan into it. Like something important has happened, whether it was on both sides. Have you, Yeah, I think, I think that's just kind of not forgetting that that I was a fan and why I'm here and I love the game. I'm passionate about the game. And if it's an exciting game and a big game or a big spot in the game, uh, that needs to be apparent in your delivery. And, uh, you know, radio is a little bit different than TV. TV, the pictures tell the story. On radio, it's up to the broadcaster to tell the story. And to set the mood, if I don't say something happens, it didn't happen in the game. If I don't tell you that it's raining, the listener doesn't know that it's raining, or the wind shifted from blowing out to left, blowing out to right, you know, that could impact the game. you got to stay on top of all that stuff. And, and I feel a tremendous responsibility to the listener at all times to try to capture the moment, whatever that moment is. And it, it may be an exciting moment. It may not be an exciting moment, whatever it is over the course of 162. But, but I love the game, and I love – great moments and exciting moments and i show up optimistic and hopeful every night that you know tonight's the night that the marlins get it turned around or tonight's the night the marlins are able to keep it going and sustain this thing a little bit if they're on a good stretch whatever it may be and i want that energy to be apparent in the way i call a game uh now i think the area where i've gotten better over the years is you don't want to be too over the top and you don't want to oversell something that doesn't deserve to be oversold uh you can't start here in the top of the first inning because then when something happens in the ninth there's nowhere to go you know you got to kind of build up and you got to understand that's one of the things i talk about a lot when i work with young broadcasters and aspiring broadcasters is you have to pace yourself and an rbi single in the top of the first is nothing like a bases clearing go ahead three run double in the bottom of the eighth inning 
And if you're here in the first inning, then where do you go in the eighth? Uh, so, uh, you know, I think I've gotten better over the decades I've been doing this and pacing myself in that regard. But I love the game. And I hope that's one of the first things people who listen to me hear and think about me, because I do want that to come out in the broadcast each and every night. You spoke on uh, fans capturing the moment. I don't know if you saw the video the other night of Adley Rutschen making his Major League debut, and he kind of took the 360 in. Do you think yep. players should do that more, or do you think they don't do it enough whenever they're coming up? Yes, uh, I think players should do that more. I think that players don't do that enough. It's a great question and a great point, Presley. Uh, in fact, on a personal level, I'll say this. you know, I grew up dreaming of working as a Major League Baseball broadcaster, and literally every night to this day, and again, this is something that I share with, with young broadcasters and people who, who are just getting to the big leagues for the first time, whatever it may be, every night to this day during the national anthem, I just stop and stand still and look around and soak in the moment and remind myself where I am and what I'm going to be doing for the next three hours and what it would have meant to 11-year-old Glenn to know that in 2022 he'd be in his 15th year calling Marlins games on the radio. Uh, and I wish players did more of that, uh, as Rutschman did. And I think Rutschman said he did it because Matt Wieters recommended that he do that. And it's great to hear a veteran player, a former player in this case, Wieters, pass that on to a guy making his big league debut because things happen so quickly. And if, if you blink, you miss a special moment. And I think that's part of the wisdom of age that I've developed doing this for a long time. You want to try to remember, you want to take a mental snapshot. You want to remember special moments, special occasions. And certainly a debut like Rutschman's is one of those moments. So I'm happy for him he was able to do that. But I'll tell it to young broadcasters all the time, literally. I have a friend who covered her first Super Bowl several years ago. And I told her, hey, you're going to be running around 1,000 miles per hour. There's going to be a lot going on. But at some point before kickoff, just stop and look around and think about where you are right now. Uh, I have a, a former student of mine who grew up a big New York Rangers fan. And I said, hey, at some point in your life, you're going to get to cover a game at Madison Square Garden. And when you do, stop and look around and realize where you are. And he actually sent me a, a text message a few months ago with a picture. He was at Madison Square Garden covering a Florida Panthers-New York Rangers game for the first time. He said, I remember what you told me. And I stopped. And I wanted to remember it. So uh, whether you're a broadcaster, a player, I think we should all, in life in general, every now and then stop and smell the roses a little bit. If you could give any advice uh, to anybody going into sports media, whether it be journalism or analysis, or analyst, uh, analysis that's the word I'm looking for, like myself, or broadcasting, you know, like you've done for so long, what advice would you give them? Like your first go-to yeah. advice. Uh I, I've been lucky enough in the last year to start teaching sports broadcasting at Florida Atlantic University here in Boca Raton, Florida. And so I've thought a lot about this stuff, and I've done a lot of long lectures. So it's it's more than one piece of advice. But I'll start with this. Uh, if you want to get into broadcasting, if you want to broadcast Major League Baseball or the National Football League, whatever it is, the first thing you got to do is you've got to really watch and listen closely to people who do it at a high level, not just the voice of your team, but listen to the voices of all different teams. And now you can do that thanks to satellite radio and various websites and online and apps. Uh, you can listen to everybody calling every game. 
and listen to, to what broadcasters do, how they do it, what they say, why they say certain things, why they don't say certain things. Don't just listen as a fan to see who wins, who hits a home run, but really study the broadcasters and what they do and how they do it and why they do it uh, and, and begin through osmosis to develop some of those techniques that you hear, that you observe, when you really, really get locked in on watching and listening. Uh, the next thing after that is you've got to get out and you got to do this. This is not something you can learn to do exclusively by taking a college class somewhere. You've got to get out and you've got to record games. And it doesn't mean you have to have a full-time job at a radio station or a TV station. You can take your iPhone and you can sit in the stands at a high school game or a college game or a little league game or a major league game, and you can record play-by-play. And you can go back and you can listen to yourself, critique yourself, and you can say, you know what, I'm talking too fast, I'm talking too slow, I've got too much energy, I don't have enough energy, uh, I ha- use too many statistics, I don't use enough statistics, there are certain words or phrases I use too often. Only by going back and listening to yourself can you learn those things. And after a while, when you've done a lot of that, you know, and maybe at some point you're working at a high school station or a college station, when you put a good tape together, a tape that you're proud of, a tape that you're happy with, not just the first thing you ever recorded, but something that, okay, I've developed a little bit now. Send that off to various broadcasters who you respect. It's easier than ever now to reach out to people via social media, via email, and not everybody's going to get back to you, but a handful will, and some of them are going to take the time to listen and offer critiques, and I can promise you in the beginning there's going to be a long way to go to get you to where you ultimately want to be. But by listening to those critiques, by then going back and doing more games and employing the recommendations that various broadcasters might have shared with you, you're going to get better and better and better. And in the process, you're going to develop some relationships that may just help you down the road. So those are the big things. Watch and listen, not like a fan, but as an aspiring broadcaster. Study what the broadcasters do on TV and radio. Learn the difference between a TV call and a radio call. It could be subtle. You might not have ever really thought about it. But the way I call a game on radio is different than the way Paul Severino calls a game on Marlins TV. Uh, TV, you got pictures. You don't have to be nearly as descriptive. You talk a lot less as a player-play broadcaster on TV. TV is more about the analyst. On the radio, the player-play broadcaster takes the lead and has to paint that picture and describe every detail. And so learn those differences and then go out and find a way to record games and do as many games as you possibly can. The difference between the first time you do it and the second time will be huge. The difference between the second time and the tenth time will be even bigger, and the tenth time to the hundredth time will keep getting bigger. And I'm telling you, I've been doing this for 31 years now, and I still to this day go back. I listen to myself. I critique myself. And there are things that I'm tweaking literally every day after doing this for 31 years. You know, something that you uh, you kept on saying is, you know, you have to paint the picture with your work or paint a picture with your words. And uh, I actually remember when I was younger, I was probably eight, and we were listening to a Rangers game, and Eric Nadell uh, had made a comment on the uniforms the Rangers were wearing that day. And I, I looked at my grandpa, and I was like, why do they do that? And he said that exact same thing. He's like, you gotta, you got to paint a picture with your words. You can't see it. you gotta, you got to give great. the fan Eric's an idea the in the head. And I'm proud to call Eric a friend. He's a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame as a broadcaster. He's tremendous at what he does. But you're exactly right. And literally every night, whether it's right before first pitch or in the first inning, because I'm on the radio, I'll tell you what uniform the Marlins are wearing, what uniform the visitors are wearing. Marlins are wearing their home whites with 
uh, trimmed in Caliente red and Miami blue, black caps and helmets. The visiting nationals in their traditional road grays, trimmed in red and navy blue. The the white curly W logo on the front of the cap, blue cap, red bill. You know, whatever it is, you got to paint that picture. The idea being that somewhere there's an eight year old like I was back in the seventies, lying in his bed, listening to the game with his eyes closed. But he or she can picture what's happening. They know which way the wind is blowing. They know where the defense is set up. They know the third baseman's in a couple of steps and the first baseman is guarding the line. They know which way the wind is blowing. They know if there's rain falling. They know if there's a pinch hitter on deck or a right-hander up in the bullpen. you got to paint that picture in its entirety. you got to tell them how big the runner's lead is off of first base. you got to remind them of the score and how many outs there are because there's not a bug in the corner of the screen on radio like there is on TV you got to constantly be painting that picture. Uh, and if a cat runs across the field, you got to tell people that, uh, or, you know, whatever it may be. But uh, that, that's the beauty of doing baseball on the radio for me. It's really – it's like a ballet. There are so many pieces to it. It's such an intricate art. And to this day, I really get a kick out of doing it. Was it harder to paint that picture back in 2020, not being able to go to the away games? Was, did no that doubt. make your job a little harder? The last two years, 2020 and 2021, we didn't travel with the team. So uh, we had to broadcast road games off of a monitor. We'd go into Lone Depot Park in Miami when the team was in Philadelphia or L.A., wherever they were, and we'd broadcast the games from a little studio in the ballpark watching off of TV. And you don't realize until you try to do that how little you actually see in watching a baseball game on TV. There. There's no way to judge the depth of a fly ball off the bat. Or, you know, there's certain things I'll look for. And a ball down the line, I immediately look to the umpire to signal fair or foul. Well, if they're not showing the umpire on TV, I've got to wait. Uh, you know, there are things we talk about in painting the picture. How big is the runner's lead off of first base? Does he have a chance to score from first on a double? Well, if they're not showing it on TV, you can't address that. So it completely changed everything that we do and made it a lot harder. Uh, in 2020, you know, with everything that had happened, we we're just grateful to have baseball at all. So it was easier to get through the year in 2020 doing that. It was only a 60-game season. And I think as 2020 went on, the expectation was, well, we'll be back to normal next year. And we weren't back to normal in 2021. And then it was 162, and it was still doing the games from the studio, which meant, uh, you know, if we're on the West Coast going in to call a game at, at 10 o'clock at night, six nights in a row, and leaving the ballpark at 3 in the morning, six nights in a row, uh, that wasn't a lot of fun. And the other side of that, beyond just the challenge of calling the game, is what I try to do every night is bring information to the broadcast. Uh, you know, th- there's so much out there now that, that fans can read about and see on social media, and fans can look up statistics, and fans can do all sorts of things on their own these days. But my job is to give them information that they can't possibly have, and that's through the access I have to players, to coaches, to managers, to executives, to scouts, to general managers, people on both teams. And you don't get that if you're not at the ballpark and if you're not on the road with the team. So that made it a big challenge the last couple of years. And that's why we're really happy to be back on the road this season. When you do go on the road, there's got to be players, you know, you get to see live in person that you're excited about, like Juan Soto, Ronald Acuna, guys like that. Who do you think is the most exciting player in your eyes, in baseball right now? Right now, um, I'll give you a couple of names. Uh, Acuna is certainly one of them. Uh, When he's healthy and on the field, he can beat you in so many different ways, and he has such charisma and such a flair about him. He's a lot of fun to watch. 
Uh, not a lot of fun if you're a Marlin playing against <laughs> the Braves 19 times a year, and they've kind of butted heads a few times over the years, the Marlins and Acuna, but he's an unbelievable talent who has now a track record of several years of putting up really big numbers. Uh, Juan Soto isn't quite as charismatic, but you look at what he does with the bat, and he's a generational-type hitter. Uh, so that that's fun to watch. We've seen very little of Shohei Otani. I'd like to see more of Otani. Uh, the Marlins didn't play the Angels last year. We did play them two games in Anaheim earlier this year. He didn't pitch in the series. We just saw him uh, at the plate. But he's a guy who just, as a fan watching on TV from time to time, you know, you can't help but marvel what Otani does. And we'll play against them again later in the season. They come to Miami for two games. Hopefully he's going to pitch in that series. So I want to see him on the mound as well. But for me, those are the first three names that come to mind. Acuna. I think for me right now is head and shoulders for everybody else and, and Soto at the plate and Otani just because of the unique nature of what he does as a two-way guy. Those, those three are all so much fun. Do you think we take what Mike Trout does for granted at this point where he's, even though he's not always on the field and healthy, he's done things that, you know, we've, especially my generation have never seen done on the field yep. before. And no, it no feels doubt. like we don't appreciate that enough right now. And part of that, I think, is because he plays on the West Coast. So for a lot of us, the games happen late at night and we're not routinely watching the Angels on TV. Part of that is because the Angels have not been a playoff team much in his career. He's played in what one postseason series. He's never won a postseason game. So he's really not been on the big stage in October, which is when so many of these legends are born and, and when their reputations are solidified. Uh, so that's, to me, one of the exciting things about the Angels being as good as they've been so far this year, he's got a chance to get back to the postseason potentially here finally in 2022, which is the second time in his entire career. Uh, but you're right. You look at his numbers all around and the way he carries himself uh, as a guy who's always been a model citizen and, and seems to be great in the way he treats fans and everything. Uh, he is a once-in-a-lifetime type talent as well. And if the guy never played another game, bottom line is he's already a Hall of Famer, and he's got a lot of his career, maybe almost half of it, still in front of him. So who knows what the final numbers are going to look like for Trout. How important to a team or franchise do you think those younger, exciting players like we were talking about, just going to go with Otani and Soto and Acuna and even Jazz, how, how important do you think that is to like a heart of a team? I, I think it's important to fans i think it's important to a team's success to have great players no matter how old they are uh you know i think we live in an era where fans get excited about the highlights that go viral and seeing somebody do something remarkable where it's throwing a base 102 miles per hour or making a throw from the outfield 100 miles per hour or now that you can quantify everything going you know first to third at at 30.6 feet per second or hitting a ball 119.4 miles per hour. Now it's all quantified. I think that's stuff that fans really embrace, uh, and that's part of the appeal of Jazz Chisholm, that Jazz is such a charismatic guy, the way he carries himself. Fans love that. Uh, But I also think sometimes we can get too carried away with some of that stuff. Uh, For me, I like guys like Joey Wendell, for example, with the Marlins, who are just – Good, solid, winning baseball players who do all the little things right, who make all the plays defensively, who are really good base runners, who are instinctive at, at the plate, on the on the bases, in the field, whatever. Uh, they do all the little things. They can get a bunt down. You need a bunt down. They You got a man at third, less than two outs. They find a way to get that run in. Uh, they understand situational hitting. So 
I'd rather have a team of 26 Joey Wendells, quite honestly, where everybody is just playing winning baseball night in and night out than have a team with a bunch of flashy guys. But that's where I think the best teams have a little bit of a mix. And you've got some of that great, young, exciting talent that lights a fire. you got veteran guys who have been through the battles before and can be a good influence on those younger players. But, uh, you know, there, there's a place for all of that. But I think sometimes we get a little too carried away in 2022 with the sizzle and and don't pay as much attention to the guys who just go out there and play good winning baseball night in and night out and year in and year out because those are the guys at the end of the day who are going to put a team over the top. I actually remember seeing Joey Wendell go to the Marlins and I was excited about it because I feel like anytime you can still play from the Rays, uh, either side of the ball, it's going to be some sort of talent. And a uh, funny story about Wendell I think it was the last, it might have been the last game he actually played. I don't know if he's played since then. I actually went up to the series in Arizona. Mm-hmm. I went to all three games, and I was at that last game, and I saw he was hitting fourth. And my girlfriend doesn't know much about baseball, so I tap her on the shoulder and I said, "I have no idea why he's hitting fourth. Fourth yeah. is supposed to be power." And then he, you know, second pitch of the at bat or Get whatever it was. Yeah, uh, I, I felt like I called that. I don't. That's it's, funny. It's the reverse call, but yeah, he can beat you in a lot of different ways. He's just a good baseball player. And, uh, yeah, he hopefully will be back this weekend when the Marlins are in Atlanta. That's the plan, it looks like, at this point. But they've really missed him a lot offensively, defensively, the versatility that he brings. And uh, they need to get him back in there. All right. I, I have one more big question for you. I think this is the most important. With the uh, with the questions of the game that you do, you do you come up with those? Those trivia questions? Yeah. I, I do. I do every night, yeah. What's your formula for that? How do you come up with that? You know what? It, it's no different than my formula for preparation in general. Uh, you know, a lot of people think if the game starts at 7 o'clock, you show up at 6.30 and you just sit there and talk about baseball for three hours. I can't – and I, I won't bore you by, by talking about the amount of preparation I do on a daily basis to broadcast a Major League Baseball game. Everybody's different. Every broadcaster is different. And I acknowledge I do too much. But I will spend all day, you know, I'll leave for the ballpark typically about 1.30 for a 7 o'clock game. Uh, but from the second I get up until I leave to the, for the ballpark, I'm working, I'm putting numbers together, I'm, I'm trying to dig out information, I'm on the phone talking to people around the game to get information. When I'm in my car driving to the ballpark, I'm on the phone talking to people trying to get more information. I get to the ballpark, go down to the clubhouse down to the field for batting practice. You talk to people on both sides, get information. Uh, So I'm constantly gathering all this information. I'm never going to use it all in any one game, but you have it for the next day. You have it for the next time these two teams play. You have it for next year, whenever it may be. Like I said earlier, I'm still to this day using stuff that Tony Gwynn said to me in 1999 that I filed away somewhere. But, But in putting information together to your question, what I'm looking for is stuff that interests me, that's kind of next level, not just the most basic average stuff. Anybody can tell you that somebody's got a six-game hitting streak. Okay, great, whatever. But I'm looking for stuff in my preparation that just, I said, well, that's a really interesting nugget. And every day as I'm doing that stuff, I say, you know what, that would be a good trivia question. And because I love baseball history and because I'm so passionate about the game and, and the way the game is enjoyed um i'm a a big trivia guy and trivia to me isn't a fact 
You know, trivia isn't how many stolen bases Luis Castillo have in 2003. That's not trivia. That's a fact. It's a number. Trivia is something that makes you think, that kind of makes the wheels turn. It makes you think about players or teams or seasons you haven't thought about in a while. So so I like stuff like that. Um, that will just make you think, maybe bring a smile to your face at some point. Uh, and... And so that's what I'm looking for when I put trivia questions together on a nightly basis. It just comes out of my daily preparation, and uh, I just I never know where it's going to go. And, and there are some nights where I'm like, ah, this is just an okay question. There are other nights I get really fired up about the question. I think it's going to be fun to talk about and lead you into some other conversations and stuff. But it's, it's a small thing, and it's, as you mentioned, just one little feature that we do in the broadcast every night, but it's something I really enjoy doing every day. Going back to the what you said at the beginning there, the – People think you just show up 30 minutes before the game and then crank it out. I actually heard Dansby Swanson say something on a different podcast. He said, uh, it's it's still a 9-to-5 job. You're just doing it at different hours of the day. And I assume that goes for y'all, too. And uh, you know anybody involved with the, the team. Ground, I know the grounds crew. I know they did something on the uh, TV broadcast with... Uh, with Kelly Sapper? Yeah, thank you. Yep, yep, uh, and yep. uh, how they were getting, they said something about them getting there at 11 in the morning for a game that started at 5 o'clock. Like it's, it's, uh, it's still, you're still working 40 plus hours a week. It's just. Oh, no doubt. Uh, it really, it's, it's more than that. Uh, you know, to Dancy Swanson's point, you're not just working from the first inning to the ninth inning. And in my case, uh, when. We're on the road. I'll go back to the hotel and work for several hours, get a jump on the next day. Uh, I don't sleep a whole lot during the baseball season. And I don't say that to toot my own horn. I just, that's just the reality. Uh, you know, you do this performance essentially for three, three and a half hours a night, night in and night out. And I can't just go home and shut it down and go to sleep at that point. You're kind of keyed up. It's, it's no different than being an actor on Broadway or, you know, whatever it may be, uh, where you're performing. And you get kind of locked in mentally, and it's hard to just shut it down after that. So uh, it, it's certainly not a nine-to-five job, and it's not for everybody. And I'm certainly not sitting here saying it's it's a harder job than a lot of other much more important things that many people do. But, uh, you know, I've chosen over the years to go about it a certain way that requires a ton of preparation day-to-day. And I really enjoy that part of the job. But it's something that, you know, people just listen to the game. Oh, well, he's just sitting there talking baseball. Well, there's a lot of thought that goes into this because what I always say is as a broadcaster, you have three jobs to do. you got to do each of these three jobs every night. You've got to inform. you got to tell people things that they don't know about a team they follow very closely. So, you know, I'm not going to just tell you stuff that you saw in the newspaper this morning or that you read on Twitter at 4 o'clock. I've got to be able to tell you stuff that you don't know about the team to make my broadcast remotely worthwhile for you you got to inform you got to educate you got to take it to a different level you got to explain why things happen the way they do why things are being done why decisions are being made the way they are uh you know whatever way you educate people who are listening about the team about the game about the sport and then once you've informed which is priority number one the who what where when why then you educate then you got to entertain a little bit and you hope you have some laughs along the way you hope you have some good back and forth with your analyst your partner uh, you know, whether whether it's humor or whether it's interesting stories or anecdotes you're sharing with things that you've experienced over the years. Uh, you know, uh, you mentioned the Luis Gonzalez story earlier. I told a few weeks ago, you know, that's nice that somebody picked up on that. Thought, oh, that was interesting that he told that story about Luis Gonzalez. Uh, but 
So that's you try to do those three things every night. And there's a lot of planning that goes into doing that. And when you're doing it every single night for about eight or nine months, you know, you can't just do the same. It's not like doing the same Broadway show at eight o'clock Monday night, eight o'clock Tuesday night, eight o'clock Wednesday night. Every day has got to be completely different. And, and that's, to me, the fun of it and uh, the challenge of it also that kind of keeps me going day in, day out. Well, I'll be the I'll be the one here today for this year at least to uh, thank you for all that work you put in. You do a really good job on the broadcast and pre and post game. The tenth inning shows also. I, really I listen. That. I try to listen to the whole thing. Uh, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I feel like we had a really good conversation here. Is there anything you would like to promote or anything else going on aside from the Marlins right now for you? No, uh, you know, the Marlins, this time of year especially, are the bulk of, of what I'm doing that uh, other people could relate to at least. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I'm on social media. If you want to follow me on Twitter, at Glenn Geffner, two N's, two F's. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. And, you know, I try, I hope, to bring people behind the scenes a little bit from time to time, whether it's pictures from the road and things like that. Uh, certainly keep up to date with what we have going on in the broadcast. But outside of that, not a whole lot. At the moment, we'll keep you posted though when uh, when I write my tell-all book or something one of these days, Presley. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll make sure to put your Twitter and stuff all in the YouTube description cool. box and all that. Uh, once again, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it a lot. I'm sure a lot of people want to know more about the behind-the-scenes stuff. It's not always you know. There's people like me who who like to look at the behind-the-scenes stuff, whether it's what they want to do or not. They just like to know what's going on. And uh, great. No, I appreciate your interest and your passion uh, and being a Marlins supporter a long way away. You know, we need more Marlins supporters here in South Florida, but yeah. uh, we'll take them in Texas as well. And it's great you were able to get up to Arizona and see the team a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yeah, I try to I try to see any, anything around here. Uh, I was at the game that uh, you Darvish threw. Yeah, that that was a big one. That was the twenty got game. thrown out. Yeah, right. Beltre got right, thrown exactly. out at the end there. Last start as a Ranger. Yep. Marlins scored twenty. D Gordon a first in leadoff home run. Mm-hmm. Marlins went over twenty runs. Beltre got thrown out, moving the on deck circle in the ninth inning. I yeah. actually went to two of the three games that week. I went to both the games they won that week. Okay. I saw Stanton hit the. I he hit two balls that weekend that I don't know if they still haven't landed, and that was yeah, four that years was, ago or however long ago. Thing, night in and night out. Pretty amazing, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna end it there. Uh, once again, thank you for coming on. It, it really Thanks does mean a lot. Presley.